We're glad that you're here. Um, just real quickly, we want to invite you, if you're a dating couple or engaged or married, we're having an intensive tonight called Viva la Difference. Um, you know, this unique phenomenon in marriage where you're attracted to these, uh, these parts of your spouse that are, that are different than you. You look for something that in, in people that they have that you don't have, kind of this sense of completion. And, and then after we get married, those very things that are attracted us to them are the things that drive us absolutely crazy. And so what do we do with that? How do we find ourselves more in fascination with that rather than frustration? And so we're going to look at several of the things that we all bump into and are going to experience, and we should just uh, recognize it as this is kind of part of the plan, and how do we see this as a good thing? So enjoy, encourage you to come, 5 o'clock, there is child care. Uh, if you need child care, please sign up in the lobby and let us know how many little ones you have. Well, this is the seventh day of Epiphany. Quite a season in the church. We're just a couple of weeks away from Lent. Oh boy, that wonderful and horrible time in life um, we go through. But, but Epiphany, we've been talking about this idea of how do we make God known. And today we're going to look particularly, how do we make Him known in our relationships, whatever those might be, whether it's friendships or a roommate or a neighbor, or spouses, how do we make not God known? Um, last week, and this beautiful privilege uh, in the second service, uh, to in, we had uh, six families bring their little ones, little souls, uh, to connect them with the church and dedicate them. And, and it really, um, I was always reminded every time I see this, of how dependent little ones are on their parents. The most of the formation that's going to happen in children comes through the life of the parents, uh, that that is the most profound, most significant, almost all of the main influence is formed uh, through the parents. And it's not through um, logical discussions about the way that the world works and the way that God works in the world um, as we're putting smashed peas in their mouth. Um, that's not how it happens. It happens simply through the behavior of parents. We oftentimes say in children, more is caught than taught. They are watching us. And therefore, therefore little ones see parents as truly godlike. They, I mean, they protect you. I'm always amazed as the parents are standing here in front of us. The little kids are just oblivious to the fact that they're, you know, three feet above the ground and they're not even thinking about uh, the idea that they could be dropped and what might happen when that would, would happen. And they're, they, so they feel they're fed, they're protected, they're covered, all of those things. So, so children see parents very much uh, godlike. And so they just settle into receiving everything um, that is presented. And as they watch parents' behavior, that is forming them. And so either what's happening there is if parents have an understanding of the nature of God and are well formed in that and understand the grace and love of God, then children pretty early in their life begin to pick that up and begin to sense that. If that's not the case, if parents are unclear of the nature of God, then children begin to understand pretty quickly that, that uh, the nature of God in the world might be selfish, it might be distant, might be punitive, might be abusive even. And so it really depends on that environment that the children find themselves in. 
Um, even the healthiest of parents have to realize that this is something that becomes known in children way before they can logically understand it, that they just sense it, they just get it. And so therefore, we have to begin to help our children understand that, hey, we're, we're fallible. At some point, we have to help them understand that we're going to make mistakes, we're going to let you down. But there's somebody in the world that will never let you down. There's somebody that we want to help put your hands together with, with him because he is faithful in all he does. And so many people obviously don't have that kind of formation in their life. And, and we as counselors see the impact of that in, in our child rearing and, and early uh, formation. And many people are struggling all of their life to deal with some of those issues. So I wonder as we were thinking about this text today, I wonder if in the adult world, it's not similar to this. Is it possible that we adults, it's really more that we, that more is caught than taught? You've oftentimes heard us say that, what if the most significant way that people see God is through you? And it's not whether you really understand clearly how it all works, how the four spiritual laws actually work in the world, or whether you have this wonderful, amazing way to explain how there can be a good God and yet suffering is allowed in the world. Maybe it has nothing to do with any of that. Maybe it's simply how you treat your neighbor, how you love your spouse, how you care for that boss that is uh, difficult to love. And possibly even your attitude and your behavior toward your enemies. So what if that's what people are catching? The end of our gospel text today was, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I heard a few of you go, ugh. Because to our modern, post-industrial age view, that sounds like, I have to do everything right. I can't make any mistakes. I've got to be like a machine and be absolutely perfect. Um, but to the ancients, they wouldn't have read it that way. And so I love the way uh, they, they uh, have translated it into the message. It says, in a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others, the way God lives towards you. What we're being challenged to do with this passage is to look at how our Father operates. Look at what He does. Catch that and apply that to our lives so that we love the people around us the way that we see the Father loving people. So as we looked at the scripture, there were three things that really jumped out to us um, in the passage. The first one is, it seems that we're the best reflection of God when we love those that are not easy to love. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God gives good gifts to all people. He sends the sun, he sends the rain on all people. They don't have to earn it. That's very different than how we tend to be. We tend to want to bless people and love people based on their behavior and based on their likability. 
that's not how God reacts to us. Now, the Israelites had to learn this lesson. One of the things that the children of Israel um, got confused about was this idea of being chosen. That because we're chosen, we're God's chosen, then it must be because of our stellar behavior. Um, or it must be because he loves us more. Um, and they had to come to understand that it had nothing to do with that, that they simply were chosen to be the ones that God was going to bless the world through. And so what would have to happen in our life um, to love our neighbors um, and truly love our enemies? What, would have to, what kind of thinking would we have to have differently? Um, how would we have to see the world differently for us to be able to love our enemies? And, and who are our enemies? Now, we all have some, you know, we think of enemies. We have some go-to global, you know, uh, groups <laughs> of people guys. that we oftentimes are, are thinking about. But we want to bring this a little bit closer to home uh, today. Um, what about that old boss that just didn't ever treat you right, um, that let you go and it just simply wasn't fair? Um, you know, maybe it's the that neighbor that just, no matter what you do and the way you treat them and how much you smile and wave, just you can just tell they've got an attitude towards you. Uh, maybe it's the people that voted for X. Maybe it's people from that certain religion. Uh, maybe it's those that you've heard that kind of talk bad about you. Um, so who are our enemies? And um, maybe it just simply starts with, have we... Have we spent any time this week praying for them? Has it been part of our um, daily office prayers to stop and go, Lord, how, how would you, what would you want me to do to love them uh, this week? And I wonder, rather than making this one really complicated, I wonder if we simply started with that. What if we took a week and we simply leaned into praying for those people. Whoever, when I said who are your enemies, whoever pops up in your mind, what if you prayed for them this week? And then simply ask, God, what would you want to do? And a lot of us don't want to ask that because we're afraid he's going to ask us to do something there that isn't going to be real comfortable. What if we simply prayed for them and asked God, what should I do to love them this week? The second thing that jumped off the page um, was love is an action word. Uh, we started with seemingly the most difficult part of this um, section of Scripture, which is loving the, uh, your enemies. But I wonder if the thing that shows our brokenness the most is how difficult it is to love those that we supposedly love, <laughs> those that are really close to us, that, that uh, you know, our, our spouse, our siblings, our roommate, uh, those that, that we're supposed to really love. Um, I wonder if that doesn't show um, something even more in us. And these are the people that can really push our buttons, aren't they? Yes. Yes, they can, as a matter of yes, fact. Yes, I can. Yes, I'm I not can. mentioning anyone in particular, but there are some people that can really Thank push you. my buttons. Mm -hmm. uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The old... Justice in Scripture was so that revenge wouldn't run rampant in the world and it wouldn't escalate into feuds. 
So you took out my eye, I'm taking out your brother. You took out my brother, I'm taking out your brother, your mother, your sister. You took those out, I'm going to take out your entire village. So God gave us this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth to keep that revenge from taking over the world. But Jesus offers us a new sort of justice, a creative, a healing, a restorative justice. We're going to look at the first section of the gospel text for today, maybe a little bit differently than you've seen it before, because we really want to look at how does this apply to my closest relationships, to those people that push my buttons. Verse 39 says, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. One of the leaders in our field, in the counseling field, is Dr. John Gottman. Um, And he has a really cool clinic up in the Northwest a little jealous sometimes uh, the resources and everything that he has to be able. He invites families and all kinds of people, relationships uh, in, and he has this huge clinic where they actually come and live. Um, and he actually videotapes them um, interacting in just normal life. Now, that may sound a little bit like the Big Brother show um, um, to you. And even though it sounds a little creepy, um, he actually has been able to come up with some pretty amazing um, statistics, understanding of, of what happens in relationships and what are things that damage relationships and what are things that bring life. And he has identified the four um, major killers of all relationships. And he calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're going to look at those briefly and how those might affect us in our relationships. The first one is criticism. Now, criticism isn't discussing conflicts or discussing discussing issues that you have in a relationship. We don't want to encourage you to stuff things and not to deal with things that are true disagreements or true issues. Criticism involves thoughts and words that attack the other person. It attacks the character of the person, and it makes them the problem. Criticism isn't, we have a problem. Criticism is, you are the problem, and you are bad. Criticism judges people. Aren't you glad we never see that in our culture? <laughs> like social media, you never see any criticism or judgment. It's just such a joy. It's okay to share a complaint. That's different than criticism. But we have to look at the words that we use when we're discussing issues. We can make some simple changes that can make a difference in how people hear us and how they respond to what we have to say. One of the easiest ones that we talk about is changing your you statements to I statements. So it might be something like, When I came home and saw that you didn't take out the trash, I was so mad at you. You, 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 you were the problem. But if we change that to, when I came home and I saw the trash wasn't taken out, I got so mad. You're still discussing the issue. You're not being passive. But you've changed it so it has less of an attack to it, and it is taking more responsibility for self. We always say with clients, if you don't want to be heard, use a whole lot of use. Because as soon as somebody hears that blaming, they're going to shut off. 
So if we can get ourselves to use more I statements, we will have less of what the next thing we're talking about is, the next horseman of the apocalypse. Yes. The next one is defensiveness. Um, the definition is self-preservation in the form of righteous indignation or innocent victimhood to ward off perceived attacks. You can always tell when you're getting into this when it's, um, oh, yeah, well, you... Um, so we're, we're very sensitive. We're kind of always on edge. We're always trying to kind of prove ourselves and trying to make sure that we do everything right so that, so that we are received well. And, and uh, we're, we're very sensitive to that initial reaction. Um, we're look, looking for the next slight, the next sense of disrespect. Uh, Bishop Ed, Ed did a brilliant job last week of talking about the emotions. Don't tell him, no. Yeah, don't tell him, actually. Yeah, <laughs> kind of gets a big head, you know. Um, but uh, brilliant uh, of sharing the emotions that are behind our anger and our violence. Um, the language we use is we always say that anger is a secondary emotion. Uh, the primary emotion is always I'm hurt, feel disrespected, feel misunderstood, I feel alone, I feel uncared for. Um, but oftentimes we don't manage things on that level and we just let it build up and build up and build up until it comes out in anger or in violence. And so being uh, more responsible and being more aware of the moment that I feel that disrespect or I feel unloved or uncared for, you can actually do something with that. When it boils up in anger, it's always going to come across as an attack or uh, criticism or you're wrong and it's going to get into a, 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 some kind of a, um, a, a reaction there. But when we are able to go to a person and say, I really felt un unheard in that situation, we actually are sharing some of the responsibility. We're, we're saying it's not, it's not all your fault here. That I, this, I just may be sensitive to this. This may be hitting a bruise that, I've, um, that I have from my own life experiences. And so let's join in together and let's work on some resolution here for the both of us. The third one is contempt. Contempt is beyond criticism. Contempt is looking down on someone with disgust. It's saying or thinking, you're worthless. You're stupid. You're below my level. Contempt shows itself in statements that are like sarcasm, cynicism, name-calling, mockery, and hostile humor. In any kind of relationship, sarcasm hostile uh, humor, mockery, wound. Even if we think we're saying it to be a joke, it still wounds. I, I think that cynicism is the rampant disease of our culture right now. People are looking down on everything. And I think that's why we are such suckers for the puppy and kitty videos. <laughs> you go, oh, look, that puppy and kitty are playing together. Oh, that goat is hanging out with that bunny. Isn't that cute? I think it's because we're so tired of cynicism. We're so tired of yuck that we just want to see something that's sweet. We want to see something that's innocent. We're tired of a lot of the snarky that is out there. It's interesting. Contempt is considered the number one predictor of a divorce. If they see contempt in a marriage, that is the number one predictor that they will get a divorce. But we're the people of God, and we're called to build a community of respect, of appreciation. We want to be honest with each other, 
but not honest in a way that wounds and not speaking something in a way that's undercover. I'm going to say it in a sideways way and see if you get it or not, instead of being honest for how, about what I really think and about what I really feel. So we have to ask ourselves, am I looking down on somebody? Do I look at somebody and go, idiot? I can always crack up Brent with that. <laughs> Every once in a while when we're doing something uh, or we're in traffic, we'll be driving along and I'll go, idiot. <laughs> and it cracks him up. Uh, it's not something I say very often. That's why. <laughs> Do I view a person or a group of people around me with contempt? These are people that God loves. These are the people that Jesus died for. And so I find myself saying, Lord, help me to see the people around me as valuable. Help me to see them as you see them. Help me to see them as an important part of our world. And then I have to ask, how do I speak to those around me? You know, I used to be so good at sarcasm. It was a real gift that I had. I was really good at it. Um, I call it quick-wittedness. And um, some people call it being a smart aleck, having a bad attitude. Um, but at one point in college, somebody pointed out a scripture to me that really made a difference. It's in Proverbs 26, 18. I didn't like it in the beginning, but I learned to. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is the one who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. It's so easy to be snarky in our culture. And then if you take offense, go, what? Oh, I was just joking. I didn't mean that bad. Philippians 4 that we're also familiar with. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about, and I would say say, such things. And the God of peace will be with you. And I would also say the God of peace will be with you. We will spread peace to people around us. Proverbs 16 says, The heart of the wise makes their mouth prudent, and their lips promote instruction. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Contempt kills relationships. We are the people of grace. Lord, we ask that our words would be gracious and that they would be healing and life to people around us. The fourth one is, and final one is stonewalling. It's where the listener just withdraws, shuts down, um, doesn't participate anymore. Now, this may seem a lot better, this kind of imploding and kind of uh, holding it all in may seem a lot better than just letting it build up and explode. Um, but it actually, neither one of them actually moved the relationship forward. Uh, now, this can take on all kinds of forms. You know, we've, we've literally laughed that we have clients in our office, sometimes their partner's saying something, and they literally stick their fingers in their ears, and they go, la, 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 I'm not listening to this. Um, and, and yes, they're adults. <laughs> and they're adults, yes. Uh, <laughs> we've seen that happen. It might just be that we just slowly withdraw, uh, or we just cut people off, and we just don't hang out with them uh, any longer. Uh, sometimes stonewalling in relationships can last for years and years and just totally disconnect. Um, just just uh, don't ever talk to the person again. Um, now, stonewalling is different 
than asking for a break in a conversation that's not going well. If you've been in any of our intensives on managing conflict, we talk about this dance step um, where um, partners, and this happens with friends, this happens in, in families, uh, all kinds of relationships, but somebody kind of hits your bruise and they do something that hits your bruise and then you react um, out of that hurt and that hits their bruise and then all of a sudden everything starts escalating. Um, so we re- recognize and, and even encourage people to take a break but we're talking like 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and not 20 to 30 minutes where you go and sit there and, and think the whole time, as, I, I'm not going to take this any longer. And you just build up your you know, anger until you go back and then you just blast them again. Um, so it's the opportunities, you know, what, what would happen, surprise, surprise, if we actually prayed for them and we took 20 or 30 minutes uh, away or we went listen to music or exercise or whatever and came back to work towards um, resolution. And so the idea of we are, again, taking responsibility. We can't, um, we can't fix um, other people. Uh, we can't do their part. But in all of these circumstances, we're responsible for our response. How do we respond in these situations? And if we respond appropriately, might they see a glimpse of God? Might that be the most significant representation of God? in our response to these types of things. Obviously, these four horsemen are killers, um, and, um, but we're responsible for our side. And oftentimes, in these close relationships that we have, because there's so much passion, um, it's sometimes the greatest opportunity we have to reflect God uh, when things are going badly and we respond differently. Because the nature of love um, God's love is giving love when you don't get anything back from it. That's what it means to be Christian, where you give and you sacrifice and you're not expecting anything in return. Um, throughout the entire New Testament, when it talks about love, it never talks about a feeling. It never talks about this thing that wells up within us, this emotion of love, and then we go act in loving ways. It's an action word. It's something that we do. Now, yes, it generates and can... Um, bring about good feelings, um, but action comes first. If you wait for the good feelings or you wait to see if this person's going to meet my needs, because we talk a lot in marriage. We, we say in marriage and in all relationships, in families, we want to get a reasonable amount of our needs met. We're not going to get everything we want, but we want a reasonable amount. But if we wait in many relationships to get our needs met, we're going to be very sketchy and very iffy in how we respond in love. Our job is to love, even if we're not getting everything that we want. Um, In the couples that we've worked with and families that we've worked with, I do quite a bit, by the way, I do quite a bit of um, like mother-in-law, daughter-in-law counseling um, or in-law counseling of some kind. And what we found is even in the most difficult situations, if one person is willing to go the extra mile, if one person is willing to go, you know what, I may not get much out of this relationship, but I'm going to continue to give and give in that. That's when we see healing. About 20 years ago, I had a couple in... um, the wife, I saw the wife and the husband separately to begin with, and the wife looked at me and she said, Janice, you don't understand... I can't stand the way he breathes. 
I don't want to get back together with him. I don't like to be in the room with him because he breathes wrong. And it's like, have you considered seeing my husband? Yeah. That was a joke. Um, I meant not seeing my husband as a date, but in terms of seeing him as a therapist. But the husband came in and he said, I know this relationship is right. I know this is of God, and I'm going to do anything that it takes. And that guy took three years loving her and loving her and loving her. And she was willing to stay in the house before the relationship was restored. But it took somebody going the extra mile and doing something, even if they weren't getting things in return. That's what Jesus did. He gave even when he wasn't seeing things in return. When we have a deep hurt in our lives, it's so easy to pull away. It's like, I don't want to risk this. I'm not going to put myself out there. Maybe I was hurt by somebody else, but I'm not going to put myself out there for new friendships because it's too easy to get hurt. We withdraw. And I'm not talking about um, not having good boundaries. We talk all the time with people who have abusive relationships or unhealthy relationships and talk to them about setting boundaries and maybe you need to step away from that relationship it's because it's not healthy for you. I'm talking about your sister, your friend, people that are healthy or at least as healthy as we can be and they've hurt you and they've wounded you and so you want to step back from them. Uh, a while back, I was sitting around, and I may or may not have been thinking about cutting someone off completely <laughs> in my life. You're dead to me. I, I may have, may not have had that. And, and the scripture in Luke came to me, and this is so familiar to us, but I love the way that it's, it's said in Luke um, better than anywhere else. And I imagine Jesus and the disciples sitting there at the table, and it says, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And I imagine him looking at each one of them in the eye. And he gave it. And he said to them, this is my body given for you, person by person. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Jesus knew sitting there saying, this is my body, this is my blood for you. He knew those guys who had been with him for three years weren't going to even be able to stay, stay awake that night. They were going to be too concerned with their own stuff, too selfish to be able to stay awake. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him that night, all that very night, and he did it anyway. We get so caught up with, well, I'm not doing this until they do this, or I give and I give in this relationship. What am I going to get out of this? Why do I always have to be the one that makes the calls? Why do I have to be the one that makes the effort in this relationship? Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And love is an action. 
In 1 John 3.16, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers and our sisters. The final thing we want to mention, um, number three, is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, When Jesus is asked what are the greatest commandments in Mark 12, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than, than these. We often quote the second part of that, of course, with the emphasis on loving your neighbor part, which is appropriate. Uh, but in our opinion, the main reason we have a struggle loving our neighbor, loving our enemy, is we could, because we don't love ourselves. If we really loved ourselves, would be, we be so slighted when somebody cuts in front of us in traffic or steps in front of us um, in the line at the grocery store? Uh, would we feel unappreciated? If we really loved ourselves, would we feel unappreciated? If we give something to somebody and they don't even notice it, um, or they don't give us something in return. I have to confess, uh, we were working on this message, and last night, um, I brought Janice a glass of water. Now, I don't remember in 38 years of marriage, me bringing her a glass of water and her not saying thank you, but she was kind of distracted, And and I brought it to her, and I set it down next to her, and she picked it up, and she didn't say anything. Idiot. And I, yeah, I knew what she was thinking. And I said, you're welcome. <laughs> and I thought, Gah. So, I mean, I just, this very thing. Again, you prepare something and you get convicted. Um, <laughs> if we really loved ourselves, we feel that deeply disrespected if the boss doesn't give us uh, applaud for our work on the project and kind of takes it over as his own. I think it really comes down to we don't really love ourselves. Um, do you love you? Do you really receive the forgiveness of God in your life? Do you really believe that you are deeply loved? Do you really believe that there's nothing that you could do uh, in a negative way that would cause him to, to, to uh, stop loving you? Do you believe there's nothing you could do in some wonderful way that would cause him to love you more? Do we really believe that? There's a wonderful quote by Brennan Manning. It's long, but it's so good. I want you to hear it all. It says, Jesus told us to consider ourselves the least of all. He also told us that what we do for the least brother, we do to him. Since whatever is done for the least is done for the Lord, our compassion must start with ourselves. Before I'm asked to show compassion towards my brothers and sisters in their suffering, I'm asked to accept the compassion of Jesus in my own life to be transformed by it, and to become caring and compassionate toward myself in my own failure and hurt, in my own suffering and need. His love is not conditioned by what we are or do. He will be gracious and compassionate towards us no matter what our track record, for that is what Jesus means, the one who saves. Those who live out of the sinner know in their bones that they are poor and sinful, But there's a spirit of self-acceptance without self-concern. This is the heart of the gospel, that we can be gracious and compassionate towards ourselves. My brother or sister, if you live out of the sinner, you win. On a given day, you might be more depressed than anything else. But when your life is hidden with Christ in God, 
you win. The roof might collapse, the empire might crumble, you might be transferred to Pago Pago, wherever that is. But with Christ in you, your hope of glory, you win. You might be thinking low thoughts in high places, sitting in church wondering about the preacher's hairstyle. Not an issue this morning. Um, <laughs> you, you like what I'm doing with it lately? <laughs> <laughs> or what would you say if the president gave you a phone call? Or what other name might you have chosen for yourself? Or could you witness for Christ if you were being tortured with electric shock? Or with a little body work, could you look like Rambo? But if you live out of the center on and off during the day, you win. We have a saying in our kitchen enclosed in an old beaten up wooden frame that says, God will not look you over for medals, diplomas, or honors, but for scars. In the middle of Lent, all you may have are your wounds and your last shred of hope. But with the risen, victorious Jesus at the center of your life, you win. That's what the early Christian community had had against Jerusalem, Rome, and Athens. And the Christians won. That's no rhetoric. That's history. They had only Jesus, yet we keep thinking that's not enough. So if our inability to love others uh, is we are unable to really fully love ourselves, that also means that when others treat us in unloving ways, that it's probably because they don't know how to love themselves either. Um, so the next time we react in an unloving way, what if our response to God was simply, God, search me. Where is it that I am still trying to perform for you or for others? Where is it that I'm still needing the acceptance of people to feel validated? Where is it that I'm not yet convinced of your saving grace um, in my failures? Where is it that I'm still living out of shame? And how can I reflect you uh, in this moment? And the next time someone acts um, towards you in an unloving way, What if our response is simply, Lord, where is it that they are broken? Where is it that they don't know who they are in you? And how might my response right now reflect you the best? No matter how much it hurts, no matter how much it triggers certain things in me, how might I respond in a way that reflects you? We want to close this morning with a prayer that pops up over and over again in the daily office for those of you that are following in that rhythm. Will you stand up, and we're going to pray this together. Lord, make make me an instrument instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is error, the truth. Where there is doubt, the faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine divine Master, Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. 
If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.